You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Today is August 3rd, 2017, and welcome to episode one of our 2017 summer series. To my right are James and Grant. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, guys. How's it going? It's excellent. That was a bit of a change of pace for our intro music there. Yeah. Pretty I, nice. I, I, listen, I, far be it from me to start the, uh, the the podcast off, but seeing as we are changing things up for the summer, I, I have to say, James, I'm impressed with your choice of music this week. Well done. Well, thank you very much. I figured I'd uh, liven the mood up, seeing as it is actually summer. Yeah, this is anyway. This is like the the, the summer camp for good kids. Nobody got sent here. We all chose to come here, which is uh, which is <laughs> excellent. And throughout this series in August, we're going to be having a bunch of conversations with previous guests and talk to them about something that Aaron and I find fascinating, and that's the things they do outside of finance that keep them balanced and centered. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right, Grant. And when we were conceiving this series and thinking about, oh, man, what, what should we do during the August break? It's like, why don't we just flip the script on its head and do something completely unrelated to finance? Talk to Because so many of our contributors have interesting lives and they have such varied interests. So it was kind of a natural thing for us to do. And for those finance fans still with us, after we told you we're going to do nothing about finance this week, <laughs> we're also going to get a bunch of uh, book recommendations. We've had so many requests from uh, listeners of the podcast, subscribers to Real Vision, for, uh, to find out the kind of books that uh, our guests read. Um, so we're going to talk to them about those and, and get a few recommendations for you to take to the beach in the last uh, few weeks of summer. That's actually a perfect segue into the first thing we're going to talk about. Um, now, we advertised last week that we're actually taking, we were going to take a bunch of listener questions and subscriber questions, and that's what we've done for this week's episode. So it's going to be kind of like a Q&A session. Um, I guess we called it Milton's Mailbag internally. I, I, I think we went down the road of alliteration, which is always an easy one to travel. Yeah, it is. But uh, so that's what we're going to do this episode. We're going to answer some of your burning, pressing questions, questions that Grant and I have sort of collected in our, I guess, subconscious or conscious over, over the past five months of Adventures in Finance. And we're going to address some of those questions today. So the, Grant, the first question that I've gotten at, well, this is a question that I've gotten the most um, out of any other question that we're going we're gonna to talk about today. And that is, you know, what books would you recommend if someone wants to get into macroeconomics investing and trading? Yeah, this is a, this is a very, very common uh, question I get asked as I travel around. And, and it's a great one. I mean, I think, I think everybody should read. Um, you know, for me, I, I start with history always. I, I love to read about financial history as opposed mm. to um, how people build their frameworks first and foremost. And then you kind of get into how individuals have, have built their careers and built, built the frameworks within which they invest. Yeah, I like that approach too because I think what underlies that view is that you know there are humans who are you know you're always dealing with humans here. So if you look back in history, you look back in the past, you can actually learn learn about the cyclicality. We of, never change. You know, we, we, do. we never change. Right. I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean, I mean on on the subject of history, a couple of uh, fantastic books that uh, that I've read. I mean, the first one, Charles Mackay's Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Now. I, I don't want to lull anybody out there. It's it's a hard read, right? There's a, there's a, it's a verbose. I don't it's a think big so, book. Grant. It's not yeah, a hard read. Yeah, you and I go back and forth, but I mean, the the, the the chapters about bubbles and stuff are fascinating. Yeah. 
but wading through the whole thing is it's you know you got to commit to it it's it's worth it in the end yeah. but to me it's uh it, you know it's a, it's a challenge to get through the whole book um but as i said worth it the other one i've mentioned it before uh, on the podcast and, and i can't recommend it highly enough and i've had people question me so i need to enunciate this clearly the lords of finance by Leoquat ahmed what was wrong with the previous uh people thought i said the laws of finance instead of lords uh, Lords, L-O-R-D-S, of finance. It's a, a tremendous historical look at central banking back between the world wars um, and so many parallels uh, then to now that uh, I've read this book, I think, four, maybe five times now, and every wow. time I read it, I underline different passages. It's, it's an extraordinary piece of work by Leoquat Ahmed. And Grant, just to piggyback off of that history theme, I think another book that, I mean, you and I, we, we've talked about a lot and we've talked about internally a lot at the offices Edward Griffin's A Creature from Jekyll Island. Yes, another, another excellent, right? excellent read. That's one of those books where, I mean, it is a commitment because it's pretty, it's, it's sizable. I mean, that thing, if, if, it dro- if you drop that on someone's head, I think you know, get a pretty serious concussion. But it, re- but it reads like a good thriller. It you know, does. That's, that's the beauty of it. It does. It's, it's, it's a story. Um, it just happens to be factual one, which, uh, <laughs> which is always interesting. Yeah, the other, the other book we should, we should talk about is um, Neil, Howe and William, uh, Neil Howe and William Strauss's The Fourth Turning, which... Yes. Uh, you know, has been essential reading for a number of years, but arguably never more so than now. Uh, it, you know, it's a study of, of generations, um, and uh, we are at the fourth turning now. And, and to read uh, Neil and William's book and understand what that means, uh, I think, is crucial. Not not just if you want to invest, but living in the time we do, it's really important to understand the societal forces that are uh, that are playing out right now. Yeah, if I if I I think if I took an actual tally of all the times the fourth turning was mentioned in Real Vision TV interviews, oh, by far, the by most, far, right? by far the most uh, mentioned book. Yeah, no, no question. I, I think so, and I think maybe the second runner up to to that might be Jack Schwager's Market Wizards series. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I've I've tried to stack the deck in favor of Lords of Finance. I've mentioned <laughs> that, but I don't think I don't count them all by me. But yeah, Market Wizards, tremendous, tremendous book. Yeah, um, and Jack has written numerous volumes over decades, I think, right? And speaking to hedge fund managers, speaking to discretionary traders, uh, just there's so much there. I, when I, I actually started reading hedge fund market wizards recently, yep. um, got through the Calmo Shea, uh, these guys, you know, macro traders now onto Ray Dalio. And, you know, it's just, it's almost like real vision before real vision kind of was. Yeah, no, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a great um, way of putting it. There, there's so much information in there. Um, you know, learned information, which is always the, the, the most useful to me. These guys have, have figured this out by doing it, screwing it up, and figuring out what they got wrong. And it's, uh, it's an extraordinary book, the original one, and you know, all the others that Jack's written have all been well worth the read too. Yeah, absolutely. So for trading, I would say Jack Schwager's Market Wizards series. You should check all those books out. Um, and now specifically onto macro, uh, there are two, I mean, for our show notes here, I put down two names that everyone's going to know, George Soros and Ray Dalio. Uh, Ray Dalio wrote The Economic Principles, which is, um, and there's also a video on YouTube, 30-minute video that I highly yeah. recommend people watch. It's, I think it's titled How the Economic Machine Works, and basically runs, runs you through in an animated um, kind of format how Ray Dalio looks at the world in terms of being an economic machine. Uh, but for, for George Soros, he's written numerous books as well, Soros on Soros, The Crisis of Global Capitalism. Um, so there's a lot of books to dig through there as well. Grant, do you have uh, any? Well, a, co- a couple yeah. more that I would. Uh, Jim Jim Rogers' Investment Biker was was something that had a profound effect on me when I read it a long, long time ago. Um, you know, Tim Price recommended uh, Edwin Lefebvre's Reminiscences of a Stockbroker, talk, uh, talking about the life story of right. Jesse Livermore, which again, just filled with lessons. And you know, for me, I've recently reread uh, Mervyn King's The End of Alchemy, uh, 
And anyone listening to this podcast regularly knows I'm no fan of central bankers. But I, but I have to say um, the, the forthright way that uh, Sir Mervyn writes that book is hugely impressive. And, and he, you know, he doesn't pull any punches. Um, and it's interesting to read uh, a, a career central banker um, talk about what the central banks have done since 2008 in the way he does. You know, he, he owns up to a lot of mistakes. It's by no means perfect, but, uh, but it's an excellent read. I, I highly recommend that. Yeah, it is. So, Grant, I think, I think that about covers it there for that question because we've just rattled through uh, probably a dozen books that the listeners can already go through. There's, t- I mean, it's going to take a lot of time to go through all those books that we just mentioned. No, absolutely right, absolutely right. But uh, hopefully people have either made notes or they can just go back and listen to them again. All right, well, Grant, let's move on to the next question that I've gotten you know, quite a few times already, which is, you know, like, what's your, I've been asked, what's your favorite Real Vision TV interview? Now, I know you and I kind of... Come on, this is Sophie's choice. I'm not yeah, doing it. I, I, I refuse I'm not, to do it. So I'm going to actually, <laughs> I, well, I'm going to change the question a little bit and not ask you for your favorite, but is there any interview that really kind of surprised you? I mean, I, I know which interviews really right, surprised that's a, me. Yeah, that's a much better question. Um, yeah, oh, look, I've done hundreds of these. So there yeah. have been plenty that, sur- that surprised me. I mean, a, a couple that spring to mind... Um, I mean, the one that jumped straight to mind was the first time I interviewed Daniel Want down in Sydney. Um, you know, Daniel had yeah. been introduced to me by a mutual friend of ours, um, Big Z, if you're listening, thanks for that. Um, and Daniel and I arranged to meet. I'd seen some presentations he'd done and we arranged to meet in Sydney and, you know, I, I went out at the appointed time to, to meet my guest and, you know, I, I I couldn't see him. There was just this kind of really young guy wearing his dad's suit sitting in the in the <laughs> foyer and I'm like, well, where's Daniel? And, and you know, this this guy says, Grant? And I was just blown away by just how young Daniel looked. Now, I will say, Daniel, if you're listening, you certainly look a lot younger than you are. I know that you're not 12 years old. But, um, you know, when Daniel sat down and started talking to me, uh, I, I, my jaw was just on the floor at, at the profoundness of what was coming out of, of this you know, young-looking guy's mouth and the depth of intellect that Daniel has is extraordinary. And to find that in Brisbane, Australia, completely out of the blue, just you know, reinforce for me everything we've tried to do with Real Vision. It's just go and find people that no one's ever heard of and give them a platform. And, and Daniel was at the very top of that list for me. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it really is the epitome of, of what we're trying to do. And, and I, I recently rewatched, I think for the third time, uh, Daniel's May 2016 presentation. And if I can borrow a phrase, what struck me there was that, you know, he builds this framework by starting with Sun Tzu, and Musashi, like, you know, these great strategists and tacticians and, you know, understanding the art of war and, 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 and understanding your competition and using that framework to approach markets. I love that. You know, he didn't start with an economics textbook. Yeah. He start with, you know, these books about war and strategy. Well, and no, so I spoke I, to Daniel about war and religion and he brings all these things into yeah. his thinking. And again, you're know, going back to a, a point earlier on about this being a, a human story as our wars, as our religion, all these things are about how humans interact with each other. So, I mean, they're perfectly applicable to markets and investing. What about you? I mean, have you had any interviews that uh, that surprised you? Oh, I mean, that, that's actually, that's a really hard question. I, I think when I look back at the balance of videos and interviews that I've watched, uh, be it my time here at Real Vision or before when I was, when I was a fan, I think Steve Diggle. Steve Diggle, re- you know, really surprised me. One, because when I first time I watched him, I had no idea who he was. Right? And then you find out, wow, this guy made a lot of money for investors in 2008 by being on the right side of the trade. But, but you contrast that with the fact that he was dumb enough to hire me <laughs> at some point in his, in his career. Yeah, right, okay. No, no, no but um, maybe. No, I'm kidding, Grant. Absolutely not. I mean, with Steve Diggle, what surprised me the most was that, I mean, one, 
he recognized that, you know what, this, this system is rigged. I'm going to get out of it. And instead of just, you know, going off and, and, you know, kind of going off into the sunset, I mean, he's actively investing in real things like farms, like German real estate and uh, UK biotech. And, and, and in terms of, you know, being a volatility and options trader in the financial markets and then turning that into, into like using that concept and, and creating it out of real stuff. Yeah, you know. Well, I mean, it's uh, amazing. Uh, it's genius. <laughs> obviously, Steve, Steve's a great friend of mine. I've known him for for many years, and you know, I don't know if he's listening or not. But I will say it because I've I've said enough people have heard me say it. You know, he's 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 that guy that I have never had a conversation with that he didn't know more about it than I did. Except gold. That's the one thing I think he'll have to kind of pass me on. <laughs> but you know, Steve's a true polymath, and and uh, yeah. you know, the interview didn't surprise me because I know him so well. But but I know it surprised a lot of people. You know, as did um, Stephen Streeter. You know, Stephen was yes. suggested to me by his cousin, Tom, out in Dubai. And he said, you know, and Tom has sent me several recommendations, all of whom have been fantastic. And he said, you know, I keep forgetting, you need to interview the smartest guy. I know it's my cousin. So I was like, all right, well, you know, great, we'll interview him. You, you've, you, everyone you've sent us so far has been amazing. And Raoul went to do the interview, and I remember him calling me uh, right before he had to do the interview. And I picked the phone and he said, Grant, it's Raoul. Who the hell is Stephen Streeter? What, who is he? What am I doing? I said, look, he's this guy's cousin and, you know, he founded a, a video game company and, you know, he's a private investor, but, you know, he's, he's just a super smart guy. And, you know, an hour and 10 minutes, the phone rings and it's real again. I said, oh, he said, Grant, it's real. I said, yeah. He said, uh, I'm just picking my jaw up. He said, I've just sat there for an hour, just spellbound by the intellect of Stephen Street. I mean, it's, it's, it's those little nuggets right. that um, are just such a pleasure to find, you know. I mean, no one's ever going to hear of Stephen Streeter unless he was on Real Vision, and, and he's just such, such an intellect. It's frightening. Well, I'm sure our listeners have their own ideas about, you know, which, you know, which favorite interviews they have and, and who surprised them the most, but, you know, I, I'm sure I could probably name a couple more who were really surprising. Oh, we, I mean, really we is, could, I mean, just we, we could, could throw through, names out. Yeah, yeah there tons of names. Guys like Chris Cole. And yes. David Hay up in Seattle, you know, Simon Mikhailovich, we get so many emails about guys like that. And, and James Crawford. Yeah, yeah exactly right. All these guys. There's, there, there's so many of them. And, you know, look, and, and listeners, please feel free to send us uh, the guests that you like and, and the, the people you want to hear more from because we'd, uh, we'd love to have them back on uh, and ask them some more questions on your behalf. Absolutely. Well, Grant, I want to move on to the next question, which I'm not sure if you've gotten as much as I have, but I've definitely got this, I think, at least six times asking Aaron, how do you get into the industry? How did you get into, how do you get into trading? How do you get into hedge funds? And I'm like, well, one, I don't work for a hedge fund or working in trading. I mean, I work in financial media right now. But I don't know. I, th- I mean, given your experience and given the little experience that I have, I think this is a pretty interesting question because a lot of people who listen to our podcast who follow Adventures in Finance are either working in the industry or trying to get into the yeah. industry. So I thought this might be a good question for us to kind of talk about and discuss um, to see if uh, if there's any insight we can provide to people. Yeah, it's, you know, for me, don't forget, I mean, I got into this industry a lifetime ago and it was, it was very, very different. Um, you know, back in, in the mid-'80s, um, it was much easier to get into this business. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't such an appealing place for people to go. Um, you know, we were, we were sort of two or three years into a bull market after, after a horrible bear market, so... You know, the stock market wasn't the place people wanted to be. You know, I've seen that change over the years. Um, uh, you know, and as, as the market ran up, obviously it attracts a lot more people. So you've seen thousands of people trying to apply for you know, tens of jobs and, and that naturally creates that, 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 that difficulty of, of finding a way into the industry. But you know, I, th- I think that the common theme that's run through as we've talked to people, you, you, you'll get a chance. It's, it's about building a network. It's about 
getting close to the right people. And you know, the advent, the advent of something like Twitter, for example, is a great way to engage. So true. Yeah, to engage really smart people that you'd never have a chance of talking to. And it's it's interesting how these conversations develop. Um, you know, and I, I know plenty of guys who've who've hired guys that they started talking to on Twitter because they just displayed that depth of intellect in those conversations. They yeah. just wanted to find out more. So I, you know, I don't think there's there's any uh, hard and fast rules of how to get into, into an industry. To me, what's more important is is once you're in, what you do and how you adapt to the industry and and, and you know the rules you need to live by uh, once you're in the industry. Uh, that's I mean that's probably a, a great follow up on. On, onto this question, um, I guess let me just add my two cents to it. I, I kind of once I once I finished university, or as I was as I was in university, I kind of followed the the track, you know, the the pedigree. Like you know, I made sure I did all the extracurriculars, had the right grades, took the right classes, talked to the right people, do your summer analyst program at Morgan Stanley, or whatever, and then you you know you just you just follow down this path. But I think the people who are going to be successful in the future are not going to follow this track. Um, you're, in some ways, you're going to find your own way. And I think we've talked about many times on Real Vision and you know, be a contributor as Raul or you, where there's this definancialization that's happening. Now, who knows? Maybe they rewrite the Volcker rule and they reinstate proprietary trading at the big investment banks. But barring that, I mean, we're going through some sort of system shift here where uh, we've had people talk about less collateral. So, I mean, it's just like less trading that's going on in the world. So if you want to get into this, I think probably going your own way is better than well, the yeah, it's track. funny you bring that up, Aaron, because again, this speaks to this this idea of cyclicality that we touch on so often. You know, yeah. back in the eighties, I turned down a place at university to go into finance at the age of, I mean, I just turned eighteen because it was what I wanted to do, and I had that opportunity. Um, you know, then you go you go through your career and you reach the the apex where you can't even get an interview unless you've got you know an MBA or a, or, a, or an undergrad right. degree in economics. And now we're coming down the backside again, and, and people are starting to say, you know. Do I really want to go to university and give up four years of potential real-world experience yeah. or should I do that and study in my spare time? So it, we are on the back side of that cycle. And I think you're right. The, the, the traditional way or at least the traditional way for the last 20 odd years of getting into finance, you know, undergrad, MBA, down that road, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's coming to an end. Yeah. Uh, and now to move back to what you were saying, you mentioned rules to live by while in the industry. So for our listeners who are already in the industry working, you know, how many years they've been working? What are some of the rules that you'd say that are important to live by? Um, there's no two ways about it. This industry attracts a lot of let's call them type A personalities, and, and I think when you're young in, in in this business, you have to find the right mentors. You have to find the people who teach you the right way to do things, and and oftentimes you have to look for those people because the noisiest brightest shining guys that everyone's attracted to and everyone can't help but hear and listen to are not always the guys you want to listen to and not always the guys you want to follow and the guys sitting in the corner getting their heads down working hard doing the thinking doing the doing the prep doing the the research you know these are the guys that there's a work ethic in finance that um you know, I, I think has has dissipated over the years. Certainly, the perception of it has with, with you know all these movies that come out about high flying traders and what have you. That work ethic, that that depth of knowledge you need, and an understanding of what it is you do, and you know, to me, obviously, I'm going to go back to it again. But history, seek out the right people to teach you. Seek out the people um, who've done it, and and you had to ask someone, hey, who's that guy in the corner? Who's that guy that doesn't say much over there? Because generally speaking, I bet you he was the guy that was around through the 82 crash, or the 82 bear market bottom, the 87 crash, 
the Asian crosses. That's the guy who's been through all those things. He didn't make a lot of fuss about it. He just got his head down and, and, and worked hard. And, and those people, if you can find two or three of those to help guide you, they are invaluable. I think you make a really interesting point, Grant, about the sort of the quiet guys versus the maybe more the guys who are more out there. Uh, I recently listened to an interview, uh, Joseph, this guy named Joseph Badaracco, and he wrote this book called Leading Quietly, an Unorthodox Guide to Doing the Right Thing. And basically looked at, I think, like a 200-year history of leaders, world leaders, military leaders, uh, corporate leaders, and you, know, you categorize them and try and find those common traits that make you know, good leaders great leaders. And he found that, you know, it's not always those ones who are the loudest, who are out in front of everybody that are the best kinds of leaders. I mean, there are many ways to lead and to find this, to, to have the, I guess, the, the, the presence of mind to, you know, because a trading floor can be pretty, pretty frenet, frenetic, right? Hectic. Yeah. Um, there are tons of big personalities out there. But if you can kind of get past that and find the people who can really teach you something, who have that experience and, and are, as you said, like really putting in the work. Um, then it could be a great learning and mentorship opportunity. Yeah, it is. And look, it's it's not it's not it, it, there's no exclusivity to this. I mean, there are there are plenty of guys that have big public profiles. Um, you know, the, the, the guy that springs to mind immediately is Carl Bass. You know, Carl has a big public persona. He's he's incredibly well known. He's you know he's a he's a erudite, handsome guy that gets out there and he has a great media presence. But you know, you sit and talk to Carl about markets and. There's just a depth to his knowledge and the way you know, I've I've seen him interact with people. He and I were on a, on a speaking tour together, and you know, he's a rock star, and he's surrounded by people, and he took so much time to talk to everybody and answer their questions, you know. And yet, and it's it's standing back and observing people in those moments, you know, how they treat people, how they interact, uh, and, and how giving they are of their time and and their wisdom. You know, they're the guys you watch that some of that, and you go, you know, here's a guy who. I want to learn from. I want to. I want to. You know, really kind of get into how they do what they do. It's it's uh, it's a it's a great business filled with so many interesting people, and um, and they're everywhere. So just people have to keep their eyes open and look out for them. All right, Graham, I'm going to throw you a curveball here. Which contributor has the best hair? Ah, oh, that's the easiest question in the world to answer. Bill Fleckenstein. No, there's no question about it. I don't know. Greg Weldon. Greg Weldon for me. Listen, it's got the best locks. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, look, I, I can't see. My eyes are too bad. I can't see as high as Greg's head. <laughs> to me, flex hair, it's the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> All right, so Grant, let's move on to our next question that we got from one of our Twitter followers uh, by the handle of Kochu Gallen. Uh, and he asks, what will happen to the famed euro dollar market after the LIBOR system gets discontinued? Yes, and so we have a fair few questions about the euro dollar system. And we thought, you know what? Aaron and I could sit here and answer this all day and we'll never come up with an answer <laughs> as smart as Jeffrey Snyder from Alhambra Partner. So why don't we let him do the heavy lifting? Well, after LIBOR uh, is replaced by another set of uh, benchmark interest rates, I don't think really a whole lot will happen to the euro dollar system because, you know, if you review the history of it from the very beginnings in the 1950s, one of the, one of the most prominent features is that it evolves based on circumstances and often evolves quite easily. So I would expect that the euro dollar system in whatever state it will be in will simply evolve to whatever the next set of benchmark rates are, whether it's a GC repo rates or whatever else might come along. The most recent round of FICC numbers from all the big banks were atrocious. There's no money in money. I think the, uh, the emphasis on LIBOR and the interest rate that sets derivatives markets is a little bit misplaced, uh, largely because I don't think it's the fact that it's driving much of the uh, emphasis behind 
the euro dollar market in general, especially the offshore currency market. And what is driving these markets is bank capacity. And bank capacity over the last few years has gotten really bad, largely because there's no money in making money. Um, you know, the latest round of FICC numbers from all of the big banks were simply atrocious, which means that these banks aren't making money out in the kind of money dealing capacities that we need for a healthy monetary system. And so the, the benchmark rate that sets, you know, the pricing of all of these securities is almost, a, a, I don't want to say it's unimportant, but it's, it's, it's kind of irrelevant to some degree. And what really matters is uh, essentially the risk and return of doing these kinds of things that uh, that go on in the euro dollar market. And for the last 10 years, really, uh, the risk return ratio has been flipped upside down from where it was in the pre-crisis era, where you know all of these banks got bigger as fast as they possibly could on the idea that there's very little risk in all return. And without being able to make money in the post-crisis era, it's all risk and no return. So uh, there isn't a whole lot of appetite for increased euro dollar capacity. Jeff, I want to bring this to you know thirty thousand feet for a second. When we th- when we consider all the political things that happened in two thousand sixteen, and and it's sort of well, you know we've in some ways I guess you could say we've had a populist re- you know a correction or recession in two thousand seventeen. But do you see what's happening with LIBOR um, being sort of part of a larger theme of sort of this retrenchment uh, you know towards nationalism? Uh, and how does how does that affect the euro dollar market in terms of capacity as you're as you're speaking about? Well, there's clearly some. Uh some relationship there because um, even people who are recalcitrant about what's happened the last 10 years have to realize that something isn't right. Uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of, of, of agreement on what exactly it is. And then certainly there's various opinions out there um, politically as well as economic and financially. And so the idea that, you know, we need to replace LIBOR um, is one aspect of a larger theme, as you said, from 30,000 feet, which is, that something isn't right here and we need to do something different. Um, again, I don't think LIBOR is the answer. Uh, I don't think it was ever really that much of a problem. Yes, there was, you know, banks were fixing and conspiring to fix the, the price of it. But overall, it's the system that's malfunctioning. And so the system is what needs to be replaced. And then various places around the world, people who don't realize that that's the problem are looking to various different solutions in order to find an answer to what they know is something wrong. Uh, the economy around the world has not recovered from the Great Recession, which is, you know, 10 years later. How is that possible? So, Jeff, I want to actually kind of, I want to keep this focus on the euro dollar market for a second, but I recently saw a chart that came out of uh, the U.S. Treasury and IFR markets showing the actual projected borrowing in marketable debt for the U.S. government, and that's like slated to go up to, I think, $500 billion uh, up, fr- up from, hundred million right now. Um, how do you see that affecting liquidity in, in the euro dollar market or, or just like broader dollar liquidity um, around the world? Well, it could have a positive impact because, you know, one of the prominent features of, you know, not, not strictly euro dollars, but the euro dollar system has been the lack of repo collateral. Uh, you know, before the, the crisis hit, it was common to have uh, repo collateralized by mortgage bonds, including uh, a subprime mortgage bonds. And so as that, that part of the repo system was paired back by the crisis and the re- rejection of especially uh, subprime mortgage bonds, it's left the repo part of the market uh, pretty bare of collateral. And of course, quantitative easing didn't help because it removed even further uh, marketable U.S. treasuries from the uh, possible use of the repo system. 
So anything that increases the amount of good collateral, pristine collateral in the system could be a positive. However, that's, that still doesn't overcome or it doesn't get beyond the idea that the, the risk return capacity of the system is all the wrong. And so it, it may aid in the liquidity aspect of the euro-dollar system globally, but it's still, um, we still have much bigger problems than that. Jeff, if I can, uh, your presentations on Real Vision about the plumbing of the euro-dollar market have been uh, just some of our most popular presentations we've had. Uh, and in those, you make a case for a very strong dollar. Now, the, the dollar bull market is at a point where um, we've had five consecutive months of falls, and a lot of people are starting to question whether the bull market is still in place or whether we've entered a new bear market. So I'd love to get an update from you, if I can, on uh, on where you think the state of play is in the dollar bull market. Well, I think you know, perspective of the dollar bull, from my perspective anyway, is that uh, you know this euro-dollar decay or euro-dollar destruction, however you want to characterize it, which, which often becomes a, a dollar shortage, is not a linear event. It doesn't just go in a straight line. It's, it's an intermittent phenomenon. There was a major crisis in 2008, a re-crisis, re-crisis in 2011, then again starting in 2014. I think we're past that part of it, but we haven't broken out of uh, the entire paradigm, which is since 2007, dollar decay or euro dollar retreat, whatever you want to call it, euro dollar erosion. Uh, and so, you know, we're in this reflation period between these dollar events where it looks like, okay, things are look things are getting better again. The dollar might fall. You know, some people say that the dollar is acting like it was in the middle 2000s and early 2000s, you know, the so-called Bush weak dollar period. I think that's, that's another kind of uh, false rally, or in this case, false decline in the dollar's index value. Simply because uh, the last the last dollar event was you know almost a year and a half ago now, and we haven't seen the, the kind of destructive uh, emphasis that had been for several years straight. So you know I, I'm of the opinion that it's it's more of a dollar pause than any kind of inflection or change in the overriding paradigm. Nice. I, I, all all uh, market conversations lead back to the dollar. It's like it's like Rome, <laughs> as they should. Yeah, I mean, uh, like it or not, we we still live in this in this dollar hegemonic system. Um, but you know, Jeff, as as Grant said, I mean, we, we really need to get you back on Real Vision TV, and you know, your presentation, some of my, my one of my favorite presentations out there, just in you know exposing a topic that few understand, and your ability to communicate it and, and illuminate it is is uh, is, is incredible. So, uh, hopefully, we can get you back on soon. Appreciate it. More than happy to. So Grant, nothing, nothing changes, I guess. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, look, it, it, Jeffrey's right. It, it's an adaptive system, right? That's what it does. I mean, it's it's survived everything so far. I, I don't think a little thing like dismantling it's going to make any difference to it. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's interesting what he talks about in terms of the dollar and, and this this idea of dollar liquidity. That's it's such a crucial market dynamic right now. Everybody kind of has to have a view on it. whether you, whether you whether you want one or not. You have to have a view on it because if it Whichever way it breaks, it's going to lead to a, you know, a cascading chain reaction of one kind or another, and you, and you have to be prepared for that. And I want to highlight this question because I think when we talk about the euro, when we talk about the euro dollar system and the U.S. dollar, those two things are so essential to the plumbing of the global financial system that you know whoever's listening to this, I hope you guys do dig a little bit deeper. And if you are a Real Vision TV subscriber, go and check out. Jeff's presentation. Yeah, because absolutely. They're he goes through the whole thing. Astonishing detail. It's 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 great, and and you'll come away thinking about the global financial system very differently, and you'll definitely learn something new. So it was great to get Jeff to answer that question for us.
Yeah, the other uh, the other question that we received so many uh, inquiries on was the Fang stocks. Um, obviously, they've uh, taken up so much space in the headlines for. I mean, I've lost count of how many months now. <laughs> and again, you know, Aaron, kind of nauseating. It, it, it really is. Um, but uh, we decided the smart thing to do for everybody's benefit was to get a good answer from someone that really follows this stuff. And, and we just figured who better than Michael Oliver of Momentum Structural Analysis. All right, so we have Michael Oliver on the line. Michael, it's great to have you join us today. Thank you for uh, putting me on this uh, show today. That's great. Appreciate it. For our listeners who are not familiar with you or your work, uh, can you just give us a brief introduction? Oh, sure. Uh, Momentum Structural Analysis is a private technical research firm. I started in 1992. Uh, we provide technical research to institutions and high net worth uh, individual investors. Um, our approach is totally different than most price chart-based technicians. Uh, we do look at price, but we consider it a secondary technical feature. We consider what's more important, the momentum trend structures that are developed when you analyze price, in, not in relation to a money unit, like a regular price chart, but when you analyze price in relation to dynamic metrics such as moving averages. And by that, I'm, I don't mean you simply lay a moving average over the price chart. Anybody can do that. But we actually create oscillators based upon how does, for example, Amazon's action this week look in relation to a 200-week moving average or a 200-day moving average, et cetera. And we plot those charts. And when we do, we often find that the momentum will give you a different and often clearer picture of a trend situation than will the price chart. And usually the trend changes will occur first on momentum and then secondarily in price. Anyway, with that as a backdrop, uh, we've been doing it since 92, and uh, we're very pleased with our record. That's fascinating. Michael, speaking of momentum, we had a question come in from numerous of our subscribers and listeners about the FANG stocks. Now, the FANG stocks, for those who don't know, that's Facebook, Amazon, Apple, um, and Netflix, and Google – and it's almost kind of acquired this sort of mythological kind of ethos now where, you know, everyone's talking about FANG stocks and, and it's, it's the talk of the town. But um, can you t give us your view on what's happening with the FANG stocks right now as it relates to momentum, price action? Uh, what are you seeing on that end? Well, actually, we've been focusing on them for several months because it's clear that's where you have to focus. The leadership is very narrow now. And if the leadership goes in a whoosh, which often blow off markets will, in other words, when they unravel, they unravel quickly. Uh, despite the effort of the broader market to hold up with this, that, or the other uh, sector, uh, they will be dragged down with the FANG stocks. So that is an important area. There's no question about it. Uh, what we look at is, uh, in particular, within the group, we look at Google um, and with and Amazon. Uh, I think we think those two are probably the prime ones to watch. Uh, over time, fundamentally speaking, although we're not fundamentalists, uh, we're confident those stocks will be with us for a long, long time, regardless of what their price does, up or down. Uh, so if they do suffer a collapse after their recent blow-off, that doesn't mean anything fundamentally to the long-lasting nature of the stock. Uh, we're not so sure about Facebook and Netflix. Uh, those are variables that could come and go. Another place to look is PNQI. It's an ETF of the Internet stocks. And it, it comprises four of those stocks minus Apple. And so it's another uh, sort of a mini-collective place to look for the behavior of that group. Uh, we also look very closely at Amazon and Google. And in fact, uh, we just put out a significant report on Amazon just last night, uh, which 
if your listeners would like, and they can access it if they'd like. Uh, but Amazon in particular and Google are both behaving about the same. In fact, today, right now, before we started our chat, uh, Amazon and Google both have spent about $10, uh, which for them is not a big deal, of numbers that if they hit, particularly close a day at or a week below, uh, they're in bigger trouble than, than the, the recent drop would indicate. I strongly suspect that when these stocks do break, and I think they could suffer, a, let's take Amazon, for example, if you break the 971 level, which is a number applicable this week, next week it would be 977. If you break that, it would not shock me to see at least another $100, $150 drop. And then suddenly you're looking at a stock that's 20 25% off its high. Um, now, it can rally back as uh, strongly as it wants, but it's highly unlikely to reachieve that high if it suffers that next phase of the drop. So we could be looking at a, a top in the leadership of the market here, given about another 1% drop in those two symbols, Google and Amazon. Well, Michael, you know, it's um, reading your work, it's fascinating. And having listened to uh, watch your Real Vision TV interview, uh, I think some of the work that you do is really unique on, on the technical analysis side and, and things that probably most of, I would, I would argue, vast majority of our, of our listeners and subscribers haven't encountered in the past. Uh, can you just remind our listeners again where they can find your work? Yes, it's Oliver MSA, MSA for Momentum Structural Analysis, OliverMSA.com. And there's a tab in there that you can uh, look around at our methodologies explained in various layers. Uh, there's a visual of the history of our calls at the S&P. And there's a, a, a query box that you can ask for samples. And if, you, if you'd like this Amazon report, we're happy to send it out to you. Michael, that's fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for your time. Thank you for joining us. And, um, and thanks for the, the great information. Thank you. So yeah, Grant, I think Michael has such an interesting view here because, as I said in the interview, this is technical analysis that I think people aren't normally exposed to. I mean, you can probably find some momentum indicator that someone's written up on whatever charting platform you're using, but it's, it's, I don't know, it's just really interesting to hear from Michael, someone who has developed decades, devoted decades to building these things, and then you know, talking about how you separate Google and Amazon away from the other fangs, and then that's how you start your analysis. So it's great to hear from Michael on that. It was. I, I love the technical guys that have built these frameworks. I just love. I just love the confidence they have. You know, having done all the work, they just have this confidence, and they say, you know, if it breaks my level, I'm all in. That's. I trust my my indicators. It's. Uh, it's always fascinating to me. Yeah, it really is. And and for me, technical analysis is a great great tool for risk management. You know, if you're thinking about how to get in and out of positions, and um, if, again, if anyone's interested in reading Michael's report on Amazon. Feel free to reach out to us at podcast at realvision.com and we can send you the report or you can go to Michael's website, olivermsa.com. They'll send you the report for free. All right, Grant, so last question, and this is kind of a selfish question. Who would you most like to interview that is not like huh. a hedge fund manager or not like a rock star analyst? Well, I, I, have a, I have a long list of people that I really, really want to give interview. Me, give me the top one. Give me the top one, though. Well... It's actually it's a great it's a great question, you know. If you gave me one right now, anyone that's uh, that that's on Twitter, if you're not following Rudy Havenstein, then you need to follow him. And Rudy, if you're out there <laughs> listening, you are my number one request. I would I would I would I would silhouette you. I would alter your voice if you want to remain anonymous. But you are one guy that I would just love to sit down and talk to. So yeah, Rudy Havenstein on Twitter at Rudy Havenstein. Um, if you don't follow him already, yeah. he is extraordinarily prolific yes and the quality of his tweets is 
just so high it embarrasses the rest of us. I asked him one time, uh, Grant, I was like, how do, you, how do you tweet so much? And he said, yeah, it's just like a stream of consciousness. Like it just comes yeah. down. Just... Well, I, I would love to find out how that consciousness works because it's extraordinary. Yeah. So Rudy, buddy, if you're listening, come on, don't be shy. We can do this and we, we will maintain your anonymity, I promise you. Well, Grant, that brings us to the end of our sort of abbreviated summer series. It uh, does. It's episode. been fun. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this one. Yeah. Um, it's, I, maybe that's because we've worked for half as long this week. What do you reckon? Maybe, perhaps it's that. <laughs> the sun is shining, so maybe we can, uh, we can get out the office yeah, no before the hours of James. darkness. Yeah, right. Now, um, one last thing before we close. Uh, we've had an incredible amount of interest uh, from you guys out there who are, uh, are looking at potentially filling Aaron's position. Um, We've got a few more days left. The deadline for submissions is the 7th of uh, August. So please, if you are interested, send us an email to podcast at realvision.com. Uh, in the subject line, put podcast hosting position uh, and send that through to us and we will, we will get back to you as soon as possible. So I, so I guess that's it. We are done for the first in our summer series. We'll be back yeah. next week. Uh, Aaron, do we, I guess, do we do a disclaimer this week or not? You know, we should do one for old time's sake. For old time's sake, all right. Not, and not because the lawyer told us so. No, no, no. Well, this is it. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors only. So do your fundamental research, chart your own technicals, place your stops and trade responsibly. Yes, and now I, I believe that leaving us reviews in the summer uh, has a negative effect, so do not leave any reviews. Whatever you do, ah, don't leave a review. The classic reverse psychology. <laughs> well, having said that, if you've got any interesting questions about this week's show or anything else for that matter, we'd love to hear it. Just send us an email or voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. As Grant Don't said. worry about the reviews. It's the summer. Take, it, yeah, take, you, take five minutes. Nah, nah, leave us a review. When other people are taken up, you should leave us a review. If you want to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and of course, our podcast, then please do follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. You can find us hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. You can follow me at Macrodidact. And that's it from us. We will see you next week. Happy summer. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com